Listener Production. You are listening to episode 146 of the Howie Games Part B, featuring Yana Pittman, the first Australian female to compete in both the Summer and Winter Olympic Games. <laughs> On we go. So it gets to the to the lead up to 2004. I had to write it down here. You won the world title, then you're in Zurich, warming yeah. up. Yeah. What what happened? Um, I just popped my uh, meniscus in my right knee, so my lateral meniscus, which is basically part of the cushioning in your knee from a, in your joint. Just you know, it's where your fibula and your tibula, fibula and your, your fibula and tibia hit your femur. So it's on the outside of the knee, and it just basically tore in training. And I was in the best shape I might ever been in. So we'd um, we'd run a run, we'd run a couple of training runs, races in um, just with my a couple of my training partners, and I'd broken the world record in a couple of my training runs. So we knew we were in the hottest shape I'd ever been in my life, and to the point we even flew Debbie Flintoff King, made her get on an emergency flight from Australia because we thought we were going to break her record finally, Phil, Phil King and I. Now, Phil was my coach at the time and he was married to Debbie Flintoff King who won the 88 Seoul Olympics. Yes. So by was, that much. By exactly, exactly. The one where you had to wait till you know, 10 minutes afterwards to find yeah. out who got the gold. Um, extraordinary, extraordinary athlete. But so she was on the plane coming over to watch me race and, yeah, I popped, popped my meniscus in, in the warm-up in the last race leading into the Olympic Games. It was absolutely devastating. Well, you use the word devastating. I, I had a look and it's an amazing thing, YouTube, and I, I found some of you speaking afterwards and you were near to tears at that stage. You didn't know if you were even going to be able to compete at that point. I'm almost resigned to the fact that I won't be running at the Olympics. You know, people have asked me if I was to lose the Olympics, how would I be? And I said my world would fall apart, let alone not even running. I would have been happy as long as I was standing on the dais with a gold medal and it's not going to happen, maybe. That's the hardest part. Uh, you, you went and had an operation. Was it like it was a week before the yeah, Olympics or something? Two weeks I remember before. it was. We were covering it for seven. I remember being in Athens, and it was, it was, it was the biggest story in Australia. Not an Australian sport. It was the biggest story in Australia. Uh, and that's where I went wrong. I think there was just so much media around that at the time. And um, you know, I guess all I wanted to prove at that point. Well, initially. To go back, they, so they said initially that my, I would never run again, let alone run the Olympics. So one of the doctors, well, full stop. Yeah, so one of the doctors in Zurich told my coach, "This is a really because it was apparently a very thick tear and some other damage. It obviously, wasn't that bad." So that was originally his his prognosis because we had an MRI, at, you know, twelve o'clock at night and the, after the race, and and then we got that wonderful phone call from um, Doctor um, Haddad over in the in the UK and said, "Would you give me a shot? I want to operate on the knee and see if I can get you back for the Olympics." And I think any athlete will take that opportunity. So Phil and I. We didn't even think about it. We didn't even discuss the impact of how much media would happen. We just saw that as we thought we could win to start off with. We thought what an incredible story this will be if we can show what an Australian, you know, what, what, what Australians are made of. You know, a lot of people would just give up, throw the towel and go home, go on, a, you know, maybe go to Ibiza and have a party, um, the Greek islands in, this, <laughs> in that context. But he was just not like that. He was just like, we, when we've got a shot, we're going to give it a go, you know. And if we fail, and this is always Phil's mentality, we'll deal with the consequences after the fail. Let's not even put it in the picture for now. So we got on a plane, went to England, had it operated on, then flew back somewhere, I can't remember, in Italy or Greece or somewhere. Again, I can't even remember where it was, Howie. And we did the recovery phase, heaps of meditation, heaps of pool work, all that kind of stuff. And through that period, we should have shut down and had no media, but we actually allowed, and I was sponsored by Channel 9. It's one of the things I went wrong with. So I did have a beautiful cameraman and Billy come with me, but unfortunately I had no idea of the amount it was generating back in Australia. So everything I did, every exercise I did, every physio appointment, you name it, they filmed it back home. And had I won the Olympics in, in Athens, it would have been an incredible hero, miracle story. Um, but unfortunately I didn't, I didn't come up with the goods, so it was just an over, you know, it was an overdone drama in the long run. Yeah, but like... 
there's the classic shot of you walking out of whatever the, the clinic is and you've got the crutches and you... That's you after the operation, the, yeah. Yeah, and you drop the crutches. I told you I had to stay positive, so look, we're going to have a good shot now. I've got 60% chance that I'll be running. But I've never thought that you did anything wrong. Like, you're 21 years of age, you're a gold medal <laughs> favourite. From from this side of the fence, Yana, as a sports journalist, yeah. it's that that's the story. I don't think you could stop that story no matter how you acted, really. Oh, I appreciate hearing that. And it's funny because I only I did an Australian story on telly a few weeks ago or a week ago now and I, in my head, built up me throwing the crutches like I must have pelted them 50 metres away because no. it's the way everyone talks about this particular incidence of when I was dramatic. And I watched it and I just literally dropped them and I'm like, oh, is that all it was? Jeez, what am I carrying on about? But um, I don't know. I think some people in the media just polarise others and, and, I, and I, I don't entirely know what I did wrong back then. I think, I don't know, I, and especially doing SAS recently and having such a beautiful response from the Australian public and uh, and so many media coming, even people who really didn't um, enjoy me, in, you know, back in the early 2000s writing to me and saying, look, I'm really sorry, I got you completely wrong. <laughs> I'd love yeah. to redo some of the stuff I wrote back then and it's, um, I don't know what I did wrong. I think one comment that I have on myself is that I'm always very honest. So I probably just didn't quite know when to not talk. Um, the second thing is I said, I've always wanted to be liked. So therefore, if some, if I thought there was an opportunity from a media perspective to show a side or a story where someone might find it, might find you, might find you interesting or might, you know, like the side of, like, like that side of you and, and become, you know, I guess no one does media to be disliked. There's not many of us yeah. that want to do it to, to come out as a, as a, as a villain kind of thing. Um, you know, and, and I think the, la- the last thing really was that because I was sponsored by Channel 9, Channel 9 would run a story and then, as you said, Channel 7 was the, had the rights to the games and you guys were there doing your job. So you would have to then counter the story from 9, who counted the story from 7, who counted the story from 9. And then in, and uh, we had no one on the ground in Australia because mum and dad were over in Greece supporting me and all my family were there. So uh, we had no idea what was happening. It's interesting, isn't it, the different perspective that, that I can have as the, the, the journalist side of it. That, you were there too, though. Have. So, yeah. like, we were yeah, on the ground yeah. over there. Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, so how, if, you wanted to, if you wanted to be that person to be liked, um, how did you deal with the dislike that you tell me is coming your way? That can't have been easy at all. No, and, and, and I guess... As a young kid, I was always quirky. I was always a little bit unusual and struggled to find friendships. I mean, part of that reason was that I trained so bloody hard that I was always off racing and training and never around. So therefore, you're never going to... And people ask you, do you want to come to the movies at eight o'clock on a, on a Friday night? And you're like, I'm at the track. So it's <laughs> not a lot of groundwork to be put in there, but... Um, it was hard. So, and there was, and I, and I've, I've talked about it a lot in the last couple of weeks because I hope it resonates for someone out there and that I tried to change who I was again. So I thought, well, this is not working. People don't like me like this. So I might try and be less emotional and I might try and be, um, you know, less open with myself. And that didn't work either, Howie, because people just write stories anyway. And I actually mm. am one of the athletes that would have loved social media to actually been around back then because then I could have talked directly to people and done little podcasts and videos and things to actually downplay some of the stories, but also just show the human side of me and um and I think that I often came across as very hard and I'm a complete marshmallow I'm as sensitive as they come so yes that part was hard because I think everyone just thought I was this you know dynamite uncrackable you know dark-haired fast-speaking woman when I'm actually this soft hair soft-natured very sensitive and that got to me for sure I think it's a really important conversation Yana I I I thankfully 
by yeah, by let's be honest, by choice, I've always avoided the hard journalist role. I've never yeah, had to take that path, so I've never had to write or say or report negatively about some anyone really. Yeah. But that's personal choice. Really, you know. Well, like, so for example, I have Steve Smith on the podcast, and and I don't ask him really any questions about what happened in South Africa. Yeah. I ask him about how he dealt with it, and people say to you, you know, you've got to ask those questions if you have Steve Smith on. I'm like, well, well. That, that's not me as a person. So I, I think what you say is really interesting that everybody needs to understand when they read the paper that Yana Pittman has a mum and a dad and, you know, a cousin and an auntie and an uncle that are reading these things about them and that they might be bulletproof on track or on court yeah. <laughs> or on the ground but they're just normal people doing their best and, I don't know, like, even more so now, Yana, like it's pylons now, pylons. If if we in the public view that someone's let us down or not done the right thing, it's a really harsh world. It's a negative world in many ways. Yeah, oh, you, if it, so it's funny because I guess I've had a different response in the last few weeks with this SAS stuff and I thought maybe now with social media and people being famous for different reasons other than just sport, yeah. that more people have that platform on social media to be able to share their stories and therefore we are far, we are valuing more sensitivity and vulnerability and authenticity. So someone being able to speak their mind and their heart is now something that is valuable, whereas I think when I was growing up, you and I are a similar age, that yeah. was not appropriate as young. You know, we were always the suck it up princess, you know, and I remember my dad doing the whole, oh, all the kids in Afri- Africa have got it a hell of a lot worse than you, Yana, stop <laughs> it and, you know, like. Eat your peas because yeah, exactly. they love a plate of peas. <laughs> exactly. So it's like, you know, as I like hid them under the table for the dog to eat, but, you know, <laughs> um, so I, I hope that I'm right in this one and that you're, you know, because I don't want our yeah. children, you know, we're parents, we don't want our kids to grow up in an environment where they worry about judgment from everyone else because it is, it's hard enough on your own with your hormones and everything going crazy and you, and, and it's difficult to succeed in this world because everyone's no longer, there's, you know, it's a, it's a different, the discipline's different at schools now. People aren't reaching for those big high goals as much as they used to when we were younger. And I just, I worry about our kids already, let alone if they can have to go through that judgment aspect as well. Yeah, it's yeah, it's a, a rapidly changing world, isn't it? Just back to Athens. So you're going as the gold medal favourite. You had a knee operation. Uh, for me, the the often the heroes at the Olympics aren't the gold medalists. You came fifth in an Olympic final a week and a bit after you'd had a knee operation. With them as they come through the turn. The crowd spurring on Halkia, and she is responding, and she goes after Pittman. Two barriers remaining, and it's Halkia leading Pittman on the inside. Tereshuk is trying to move up. Tereshuk is going after Halkia. The spin to the finish line, and it is going to be Terlia who gets second place. As the Greeks celebrate a gold medal in a time of 52-82, just outside her Olympic record. I, I know that you were going in a month prior to that being a red-hot gold medal favourite, but if you put that in isolation, <laughs> you've had a surgery and you've come fifth in an Olympic final. So how many races have you had to run a, a qualifier, a semi, and then a final? So that's you've run right, three yeah. races? Yep, three, four, I, yeah. I, that's, that's quite extraordinary, Yana Pittman. <laughs> it's quite, it's, it's a, it's a, it really is an extraordinary performance. And, look, I know that now as a doctor. Like I, I'm, I'm well aware now when I watch post-op recoveries and things how 
amazing that surgery was and what an incredible orthopedic surgeon he was and how amazing our team was to have the guts to even give it a crack. Mm. So yes, in hindsight, I look at that and think, wow, what an extraordinary performance. But it definitely at the time was one of those crap I've let everybody down situations. Whereas I don't actually think I was, I wasn't upset with myself. I was actually super, super proud of my performance. I was incredibly sad that I'd let my nation down. And and that's where a lot of, when I look back on it, that's where a lot of my worry and my fear was. I was like, oh my goodness, I'm going to be crucified for this. So it was, it was, it was hard. So transitioning on from then, you, you went on and won another world title as a mum? Yeah, eight months after I had my son. The two favourites going away from the rest of the field now and Ghana Rawlinson looking really good, the former world youth and world junior champion. Being tracked now by Pachonkin, and Pachonkin again in his Rawlinson almost stumbles off that last title, but she's got the strength. The Australian is going to come back to retain her title. Rawlinson wins it, Pachonkin is in second place. And Anna Yesin of Poland, the Stries have taken the bronze. 53.31. A brilliant run, a season's best there. Yona Rawlinson, the winner in 2003, champion once again. So how does... Um... How, 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 this is a hard, fresh question to frame, <laughs> Yana. What's the key to be able to deliver a healthy, happy baby and to then be able to train as an elite athlete and go and win a world championship again? How much does your body, I don't want to ask a too yeah, personal no, question, but how, how much does a, to, does a body change and, and what can you control and what can't you control? You certainly can't control your bladder. That's true. I did. I proved that on right. SAS Australia. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I did the same thing with with the with the recent celebrity show, the SAS, because we I was only five and a half months post um, partum, so post baby in that uh, in that competition as well, or or that um, experience. Uh, look, the fact is, I do train for most of my pregnancies, and I work with a lot of women now around what's enough and what's the right amount of exercise and how much weight can you or should you put on during pregnancy. And my mind has shifted around it a lot. So, you know, I think what I did as a young woman, when I was I was only 23, so the body's very responsive back then. I'd had yep. eight years of good running in my legs. So there was already a lot of, my, my old coach used to say, you can't taper a toothpick. Well, I was a big tree trunk at that point. I had lots of years of, yeah, <laughs> lots of years of training in those legs. So I didn't have to take much time off. You know, I, I, I don't condone this for women because I actually don't think this is good for your pelvic floor and things, but I did go for a 5K run the morning I gave birth. A strong The 5K. morning? Yeah, before I had, before, and I went to labour that afternoon with my son. So, but then like now, for example, I'm now, what, 16 weeks pregnant right now and I can barely run up the street. So it's very different how each pregnancy goes and the woman has to listen to her body. There is no right or wrong. It's what's safe for the baby because ultimately what I learned from that was three or four months or five months of reduced training or no training is not going to end your career. So, and you know, you, we've seen it with um, Sabrina, Serena Williams as well, who did the complete yeah. opposite. She did very little tennis through her pregnancy and came out and still wins. So there's lots of ways to, you know, to skin a cat, I guess, is, is the situation there. And I just think no matter what, you don't want to lose that precious moments of pregnancy because you may or not have more than one. And, it, you know, keeping fit and healthy is great for moods and hormones and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but you can't look at women like her and I, like Serena and I, and think that that's normal. Obviously, this is going to be an ignorant question because obviously I'm not going to have any understanding of this next question. Does the stress of the physical act of childbirth 
aid you in any way as an athlete to discover what your body can go through or is that just way off the No, mark? no, for sure. I mean, you, 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 but it's even just the motherhood. So it's the change of perspective. All of a sudden you care a little bit less about whether you're winning on the track because you actually just want to get home to your little one and that whole you might be standing on the start line and your entire world is wrapped up in that performance but actually it's now wrapped up in two things. And anyway, it should be your husband as well, but most of, <laughs> most of the time it's the kid. <laughs> it's the birth of that child that really changes you fundamentally as a male or a female. Um, and I actually recently spoke to Logan, who's a, who, you know, the guy who won the, the, the Olympics recently. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I spoke to him a couple of weeks ago. Um, we were doing an event together and he said the same thing as a parent. So, you know, that his focus shifted and he's a better athlete now that since he's had, um, his, since he's had his child. So I think for a lot of us, it's a great thing. And of course, labor is one of the hardest physical activities for some of us. Some women just pop babies out and, you know, and have no issues, but it definitely shows you how strong you are as a woman. So you have uh, four children at the moment. You have Two more on the way. I do. (laughs) How's the news when the old twin ultrasound comes through? Because I can remember that too and I remember going in thinking, geez, I just hope there's one in there so we can get our head around that. What is it when a doc says, let alone that you're having twins, you've already got four, so you're going, I don't know, you're going from a... Kia Carnival now to a fair income troop yeah. carrier. I don't know what you're doing. <laughs> yeah, I don't really. know. I don't know what we're going to do with the car situation. We have a Kia Carnival already, yes, but I don't know. What, thankfully, it's, it seats eight. And you've got to remember, I have a 15 year old. So, he, one, he's very helpful. Two, he doesn't really need anything. So, I sort of feel like I'm going from three to five rather than four, four to six because he's so beautiful and helpful. But, um, hmm. It's a gift, isn't it? You know, I work, is, in, I work in, yeah, I work in infertility now and I've got so many friends who are my age, close to 40 and haven't had a child and they're going through multiple rounds of IVF and I just think, wow, I've just got to count my blessings. You know, you know, you may not win the Olympics, you won't succeed in every goal, but I've hit the, I've hit the jackpot when it comes to a family. Back to Yana in a sec. Time to fire up the Howie hotline once again. The number for the hotline, 0434 694 301. Get your pen out. Got your pen. Get ready to write it down. 0434-694-301. Send us a question, either by voicemail or better yet, record a question on your phone and text it through to the number or send it through via WhatsApp. Ask whatever you want about sport, about podcasting, about the summer of cricket, about footy, about broadcasting, whatever you want, even how Darce went in our most recent game of golf because that is one I'm very keen to address. Doesn't matter what it is, send it in. We will put your question on the hotline and try to answer it. One more time, it is 0434 694 301. That is 043 Howie 01. What about that? All right, the hotline, if you haven't heard it, it goes something like this, but we need your questions to make it happen. The Howie Games Hotline. I'm not too sure if it's going to be possible for you or not to get the great Novak Djokovic on board. And yeah, I love to Big Penguin. <laughs> Cheers to you, brother. The Penguin will enjoy that shout-out. Thanks, Jasper. We're working on Federer, so maybe if I can get Federer on board, he can then convince uh, Novak and he can convince Kyrgios and then he can convince Nadal and then we got all four of them for you. Uh, g'day, Howie. Um, I'm just curious about commentator bias. The only time you favour a side is when you want a close game. If you could watch any sporting event throughout history, what would it be? That's huge. To sit there and watch Bradman make 300 in a day and to see how good he was, I think that's where I'm going. To replay, press 7. Message deleted. You have no more messages. Let's get back to Yana. So uh, on on the topic of family, now this is an area we have never discussed on the podcast before, and you tell me (laughs) immediately if it's not appropriate when I ask it for you, but... um, 
you've got a couple of children from now. I don't. I'm going to embarrass. That's no, fine. You're not going to embarrass. It's fine. Well, I'm grasping for the right words from a from a sperm donor. That's right. Yes. So, that's a fascinating conversation in the modern world that you can have a baby by yourself, Yana. Correct. I mean, there's a few things to discuss around. I guess the fact is I had a, I, I married the love of my life initially. Um, my husband was an athletics um, star as well and we I thought he was my world. So we married, we had a beautiful son together, a couple of miscarriages, and then our and our marriage fell apart for whatever reason. It's not worth discussing at this point. No. But I came out very damaged from that. But as a child, I wanted to be a doctor, an Olympic champion, and a mother of five. That actually was my goals. <laughs> I can see you ticking them off as well. <laughs> So, so you wanted five. I wanted five right from the beginning. So, I thought I'd have five. Well, you've exceeded that. Well, you're on the way to exceeding that anyway. Exactly. So hopefully we'll have two healthy ones yes. come out of this pregnancy. But Touch um, Exactly. But look, I then I was just so damaged. I mean, I don't know whether, I actually don't know if you've been through marriage, divorce or whatnot, but I'm sure many of your, your, your um, listeners have and it's horrible and it took me a long time to get over that and it was all it was around the same time. You know, I lost my husband and then I, um, you know, I had a bit of a cervical cancer scare and then I, the Olympics were all over it was all kind of at the one time. So even though I met some really wonderful, nice men, I could not make that relationship work. So eventually I got to a point where I'm like, I really want to have children on my children, more children. So I did, my parents are very Christian. So, you know, I sat down and said, mum, what am I going to do? I don't want to remarry or meet a guy just for the wrong reason. And I had a wonderful friend who was quite high up in um, Nestle. So she was a very senior um uh, uh, person in the workforce um, who'd done the same thing. So I remember meeting her twins when they were like nine months old and I thought, what an incredibly <laughs> brave thing to do. So oh, I guess yes. I'd had it, yeah, so I'd had it introduced to me in the past and I thought, what's better, that you go through a marriage and a terrible divorce and all these custody issues where the kids see two very unhappy people together or you have a child who you love and if your family loves and who understands their reasons, as in they know that they're, they're donor conceived, they've got a, a biological parent out there somewhere who they hopefully will meet some stage, but, you know, may or may not, depending on the circumstances. In my case, I hope they will. Um, and I have these beautiful girls that everybody loves and they know their story. Uh, and I've now got countless friends in the same boat who, some of them are doctors as well. We've got a medical solo mums group that is women who have gone through using sperm donation to conceive their family. And, you know, to me, I look at my, my son, who's also a solo child, like he has a father, but never sees him versus my girls who don't know who their biological father is. And their story is easier than his. You know, like as in the way he does, he feels rejected or doesn't have that communication. Whereas my girls just know they're loved. It was funny. I have to tell one story and then you can move on. But no, we're, no, we're, please do. <laughs> we're at Woolworths right before Christmas, and my there was this wonderful meaning lady walking down the aisle, and she's like, she goes to my girls who are quite pretty little things and says, "Oh, have you been good for mummy and daddy? Is Santa going to give you lots of presents?" <laughs> and Emily turns around and goes, "I don't have a daddy. I was grown in a tube." <laughs> <laughs> The woman did not like she just turned away and just walked off like she had absolutely no idea how to cope with that. So <laughs> So I feel a bit like an elephant trying to tiptoe through the daisies here at the moment, to be honest, on <laughs> really? this conversation. Nah, I'm an open book. Um, so do you do you have some form of selection? So for anyone that, people will be <laughs> yeah, listening thinking, be. how does this work? That's right. And there will be people out there from a male and a female perspective. Absolutely I've, there will be. That's right. And I've actually donated my eggs to my best friend who um, is in a same-sex relationship as a guy and they really wanted to have children and it's the same conversation. There'll be other single men out there that really want to have a family and, you know, not all, we, we, we get called socially infertile. <laughs> And not all of us are good at relationships, let's be honest. Can, can I, before you go on, can I say your eggs 
should go at a premium. We're talking world <laughs> champion. We're talking doctor. Like, this is your high level of egg, I feel. That's very nice. But, look, someone did it for me and I wanted to pay the, pay the, the favour forward. And I've done, I've done it for two families, actually, just because, I, I mean, look, don't worry, it's, it's a big decision to have and I yep. want those, those children will grow up knowing that I am biologically related to them and they can always come and ask me anything they need. Um, and, you know, my mum and dad gave me fairly good genetics, as you say, so I don't mind that uh, that situation. And... Um, you know, there are lots of conversations out there at the moment around donor-conceived children and their their decisions around how they feel about that scenario. And it's funny because one of my close friends at school was one of the first ever donor-conceived children. So she's almost 40 now and she was, you know, back in the day when IVF was literally in its infancy. Yeah. Um, and she's just, you know, grateful to be here, um, has a wonderful wonderful relationship with her, her father. So, look, it's a big decision to make, Howie. You, you have to have the support around you. Being a solo parent is not an easy job. Um, and that child, you need to think about the, the impact on the child too. Are there good male or female role models in that kid's life? Because they need to have both, you know, both aspects to grow up. And there are plenty of same-sex couples now that have great family and friends around that, you know, support that child because ultimately the kid needs to know it's loved and it has to yeah. have the opportunities we had. So, to me, so, you know, it was so, great. So, when... When you go through the process, back to... Yeah, um, the, yeah the, 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 the choice. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. fascinated. Like, no, do you so fill you out a, a, a form yeah. saying, oh, you know, I'd like someone that is like this and like this or no, they, how does it work? It's like a Tinder profile. <laughs> no, basically, <laughs> it's terrible, I've got to get out more. I've yeah. got to get out more. <laughs> <laughs> no, look, so you, you go on a waiting list, you go through multiple counselling sessions so that the clinic knows you're ready and you really understand what you're doing and what you're getting into. And once you're approved to go down that process, um, you get sent a list, a file of a whole list of people that are currently offering to be donors. You don't get names or anything and often don't get photos. You just get profiles. And I loved the profile of my donor. He was just a divine, sounded like a divine human. He was funny. He was interesting. He was, he looked like me, which was a thing for me that was important because I have another friend who chose um, a completely different colored skin donor to her because she wanted to have that child. And uh, you probably know her actually, because she's in media. Um, yes, but yeah, but yeah, exactly. And gorgeous child, you know, yeah, exactly. Stunning. So I think, um, it's a decision what, you know, what you think you want for your family. So, um, yeah, so mum and I did it together over a block of chocolate. We sat there and went through the donuts. <laughs> narrowed, Go on your mum. Got on your mum. She's pretty amazing, my mum. Very supportive. Um, we narrowed it down to two and then one of them, funnily enough, said that they wanted to have more than one sibling, so we picked that one. And then final question on this because I want to get to bobsleigh, which is quite a transition. How does it work as far as... You, you said you'd love your uh, daughters to meet their biological father at some stage. What's the process there as far as the legalities and, and can you tick box to say you don't want to meet, you do want to meet? How does that work, Yana? Yeah, well, that was one of the things I also chose in my donor um, because they wrote, uh, the last question is, would you like to have com- received communication from your donor-conceived children? Okay. And he'd said yes. And because I was a solo parent, that was very important for me, uh, that they had that knowledge. So at some point we write a letter to the clinic because mine was done through a clinic, through um, the actual um, IVF clinic, and they will contact the donor when we're ready and ask him if he'd like to have contact. So I think, you know, you you have to be wary. You you don't know this person. Ultimately, they've given you the, the biggest gift of your life, but you don't know the the background. Um, so I will hopefully email him for a little while, meet, meet him in person a few times if he's interested and then, you know, then let him meet them. So I think it's a, you know, beautiful story. And then it's up to the girls and him what the relationship goes from, where the relationship goes from there. 
You just described it as a beautiful story. Thank you for telling me that beautiful story and getting me through it because, as I said, I wasn't quite sure the appropriate questions. <laughs> hey, we get we get the bobsleigh. I was I was looking. I was looking. Uh, I don't know the pronunciation. Berg, uh, pronunciation. 2013, Altenburg? Altenburg, yeah, close. Altenburg, first race. Yep. <laughs> Had you been down a track at that point? No. Never. Okay. So this well, is what of, I thought. Yeah. yeah. Two days so, before. With a brand new break, we're making a first ever bobsleigh start of any kind. World Cup, Europa Cup, anything. It is Jana Pittman, former track cycler, uh, former 400 metres hurdler, rather, double world champion of that discipline. She's going from Summer Olympics to Winter Olympics. Okay. So you're... Your job, you're in the back of the bobsleigh, two-woman bobsleigh uh, with Astrid. So you're there for the power, yeah? That's right, just the big muscle on the back, yeah. Right. And the brake so, at the end. That's fairly important because uh, if you don't brake, you die. <laughs> is, is, <laughs> so, is, there, is there a physical brake? Right between your legs. It's like a little tooth that goes into the ice. And so you're like going 100. Oh, so you push it down. Yeah, and you're going to pull, pull it up, pull it up. Right. Well, with the changing conditions, we should see another improvement. This push should be in the fives. Yes. Starting six oh five six And again, Fiana sprinting bent over, pushing something as opposed to stretching out over the hurdles. That's got to be a big difference. It is a big change from any other sort of running form. When you run with something in front of you, your mechanics do change. You stay in more of a drive phase for much longer. Whereas in a track and field meet, it's only in that you're only in that position for your first two steps. And you're going like 130 kilometres an hour and it's literally these little like <sighs> into the ice and that's it. And if you honestly, if you don't pull it on in time, you will fly into the concrete wall at the end. So it's a fairly important job. <laughs> so the, the first time I saw Bobsleigh was at Sochi for Channel 10 yeah. and I thought I want to do a story in the lead up to, because I'm at the extreme part, I'm not going to see this. Yeah. So I went down there and chatted to a couple of Aussies. You weren't there that day. And then went and positioned ourselves. It was pretty loose in Russia, so you could just sort of set up wherever you wanted during practice. And we went right on this big banking <laughs> and saw the bobsleigh come around. And I remember myself and Ben Green, the cameraman, it yeah. came around. And I don't swear on this podcast. I try not to. But it was like F, F, F. I like know. When it came round, and the noise and the speed and the banking of that thing, TV does that sport no justice No, it's amazing, isn't it? Yeah. I have a question now. Frequent listeners to this show know that I have two kids and the one that's most enthused by the guest asks a question, right? Okay. So you get a question, <laughs> Yana, from my nine-year-old whose name is Mac. Okay. But he rolls as the big penguin, okay? Yeah, okay. And you the have big a big penguin. fan in the big penguin. You ready to go? Yep. Hey, Yana, big penguin here. First off, I think you did a great job in SAS. You were so strong, tough and determined. I would like to go on SAS one time. But what I really want to know about is bobsledding. <laughs> it looks so fun when I've watched some videos of people doing it and I heard you raced bobsled. That would be very fun. I've been on some roller coasters in Disneyland and stuff like that and they're really fun. Are bobsleds anything like that? <laughs> How good is Mac? Big Penny, yeah, he loves great. It. He loves it. It's everything, it's actually more than you can ever expect to because I remember when I said yes to do it and I'd trained in Australia for about nine months and I'd even got up to, I think it was SeaWorld or Movie World and sat on one of those rides and tried to picture myself being in a bobsled but they're all really smooth and lovely. A bobsled is horrible. It's like being in the back of a giant washing machine with absolutely no padding at all and it rattles and it's so fast and so noisy that when you get out the bottom, 
you're very dazed and confused for at least 45 minutes. And I definitely had a good chuck after my first run and was very sure I didn't never wanted to do it again. And it's funny because that's apparently what happens is you get all these keen superstar track athletes who think they're the guns, right? <laughs> get up on the bobsled and all the real bobsledders stand there and laugh at them when they watch these amazing so far, you know, wannabes. And then they all never come back because it's petrified of it. So, um, yeah, so it was, it was, it was brilliant. And so once you get used to it and because the thing is how, what you do is you hold on like dear life, don't you? You actually have to to do the opposite. You need to be really relaxed and become part of the sled. And so once you're almost not holding on, which is a little dangerous if you crash, but almost not holding on, you start to love it. And then you feel the whistle of the air and you actually really start to enjoy the speed and the, and the gravity. Like, you know, it, it's generally pretty big Gs going through some of those chrysals, which is a circle where it goes around and around and comes out and they fly out of those fast, you know, 180s, what, 360s basically. So it's extraordinary. Like it's the, it's the coolest thing I've ever done in my life. So did it become fun or was oh, yeah. it always fright? Did you ever crash the thing or yeah, not? Yeah, yeah, we crashed twice. So um, the first the first day I ever bobsledded, she crashed me. And in some ways it was actually the best thing because you realise it really wasn't a big deal. So it, it, it didn't hurt. It was, a, it was a shock to the system, don't get me wrong. And it all goes quiet. You know how you heard how rashly it was in Sochi? Yes. You know you've crashed because the wheels, the, the wheels, the blades come off the track and it's quiet. And you're like, oh, that's nice. And then you realise that's because the blades have lost contact with the ice and you're flying <laughs> through the air. And about to crash. <laughs> so, but, yeah, it was. It, look, I'm so grateful. It was such an amazing, for two reasons. First, I got to go to that Olympics and really enjoy the environment and the experience. And I remember, I remember, I remember the smell. I remember the call room. I remember the standing on the start line. I remember absolutely everything of it. Um, and the second thing was I got to do it as a pair. So it, wasn't a, it was not an individual sport. It's a team sport. And so to be able to go to an Olympic Games and share that with someone else um, is just wonderful. Australia's Jana Pittman was an accomplished 400-metre runner and hurdler before taking to the bobsled the first Australian woman to compete at an Olympics and an Olympic Winter Games with partner Astrid Rajanovic. And come 15th. Yeah, well, it's good. That's good numbers. It is. That's it's good right. numbers because it's obviously a sport dominated by the the, the Europeans That's in right. every sense of the world and the Americans of more recent times. But 15 is a good number. Yeah, we were happy. You know, Europeans, Canada, um, Europe, uh, sorry, yeah, Russia was particularly good. Germans, amazing. I mean, they won, they're the ones that won the um, 2018 as well and will probably win. Uh, although, no, I think the US now that uh, there's a lady called Lolo Jones, I don't know if you know her, but she's yes. much oh, yes. better than me even in athletics and she's now converted to bobsled as well and she's pushing Kayla. Humphreys, who's a double Olympic gold medalist in, in the women's bobsled. So that is a lethal pair just there, so from America. But, um, yeah, so, look, you know, it, it's, a, it's a great sport and I'm, I'm just, yeah, it, was, uh, it feels like a different lifetime ago, but I'm certainly glad I did it. First female athlete to represent Australia in the Summer and Winter Olympics, um, world champion. You've competed, as I said, in two games. You're a doctor. Which is the greatest of all those achievements? Uh, definitely the medicine, for sure. Is it? Yeah, I because, thought you might say that. Yeah, yeah, just because. Yeah, I did. I did. Yeah. It was my it was my childhood dream before I could even knew I could run. So, and then I almost lost it. And I think it's also been the most rewarding. Don't get me wrong. Bob said was wonderful fun, and I loved it. I love competing for my country in Australia. But there's a lot of heartache still attached to the athletics. Um, so for me, you know, especially because I work in fertility medicine now, like as you know, that's one of my passions and my research is around um, infertility and things like that. It's just brilliant. I mean, I, lo- I love my new career. So the day they said Dr Pittman, I cried probably harder than the day I lost the Olympics. So that's a good thing. <laughs> Have you put that athletics heartache as you describe it to bed? Uh, mostly. Uh, it comes out a little bit here and then when you do, when the Olympics rolls around, that kind of thing, I think just definitely just spurs it on. But how I use it, it's, you know, when I when I get worried that I'm not achieving something or I don't have enough time or I'm running out of energy, I look at it back and think, no, but 
that drive, that pain is what actually fuels and opens doors down for other things. So one of the reasons I think I've been successful in other sports and medicine is that I didn't win that Olympic gold medal. And, and how have I done that? Maybe, you know, maybe I would have done TV or just, you know, I, I don't know whether I would have continued that sort of a, a passionate, you know, goals towards in, in, in other areas of life. Final question on the show for you, always the same one. I actually can think of no better person in 140-odd episodes to answer this question. For all those youngsters that are trying to achieve success in their chosen field, whether it's to be a doctor or a runner or a bobsledder or a concert pianist or an engineer (laughs) or a builder or whatever it may be, from your tremendous experiences across a broad field, what advice would you give? And as a mother of four and hopefully soon to be six, you understand the weight of that question more than most. Yeah, I do. And it'll take me a while to describe it properly, but the greatest thing I wish I could have gone and told myself as a young person is to just accept who you are as a person. You're never going to be liked by everyone and being aware of that is okay too. So learn what your drivers are. So for me, being liked was one of them and um, I'm a people pleaser and it's okay. You know, you can be emotional and you can be confident and proud of who you are and all those things are normal in humans, whereas we get told so often that they're not. Um, so I think for me, if you're a young person and you've got a huge career ahead or any goal that you want to achieve in any aspect of your life is just to look in the mirror and basically just be proud of who that is. And it's easier said than done. I know that. But even if it's just a little, every few days saying something positive about yourself to yourself, because that, that self-belief and that self-acceptance will take you a long way. It's a great answer. I'll give you some positivity. You are a star. I've been looking forward <laughs> to chatting with you. It's wonderful to see you again. And it's great to hear how happy you are in the world being a doctor. Good luck with the next couple of kids. Um, and if you push on past there and go for no. eight or 10, good no. luck with that no, as no, well. Um, but I I think for everybody that comes into that hospital that gets sent the way of Dr. Pittman, they will have a fantastic experience, which is brilliant. Thanks so much for having a chat with me on the show. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Howie. That is it for Yana Pittman, dual world champion, summer and winter Olympian, doctor, mother, and so much more. If that doesn't inspire you to have a crack at life, I'm not sure what will. Thanks to Yana for making time in her very, very busy schedule, not an easy task, and for telling it how it is. Thanks to all of you good people for listening, to Das for getting it done, to start the year on a high, and to you all for reconnecting with the show. Thank you. Until next Thursday with one of three potential guests or with unique stories to tell, remember, send in your questions for the hotline. Peace and love. And we can do it if we try, try, try. If we try, try, try If we try, try, try Listener